Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Bill. I'm uh, part of the in-person teaching team here at the Vineyard while Randy and Claire are still figuring out their, you know, Randy's immunity situation with COVID. Um, we've been talking since October about our, a phrase in our mission statement about experiencing God's love. I mean, bottom line, there's no more important phrase. I mean, to me, the Christian life works if you've experienced God's love, and it doesn't if you haven't. And it's not enough to know about or have some kind of conceptual idea that God loves you. You've you got to know it in your being. And that's what we've been talking about for months. Um, for the last three weeks, uh, we began looking at Jesus' parables as a way of understanding his mental image of God, his picture of God in his head, right? After working through the parables of the lost in Luke 15, lost sheep, lost coin, two lost sons, what we saw is that Jesus depicts the Heavenly Father as someone who is desperate to search out and restore his lost children. That's what God is like. The way Jesus presents God is that he's willing to bear public humiliation, you know, the insults of both sons that are both public, in order to demonstrate his love for them and for us because he treasures us. And when our relationship with him is restored, what does God do? Yeah, he throws a party. Why? Because he likes us. That's Disney theology right there, if you're old enough. Uh, right, he's, he's joyful because he's happy to be with us. He wants to be with us. That's Jesus' mental image of God and the one I think he wants us to embrace. But we have a problem. There's more than one image of God in the Bible. Right? What do we do with this? Are they all accurate and true? <clears throat> That's what they taught me in seminary, that we have to hold them all as equally valid, even if there's a tension between them. Now, over time, I've come to the conclusion that this is not really possible or even helpful. So you may already be getting a little bit uncomfortable. Many of the portrayals of God are simply too different to be compatible, right? They can't both be true. So the question is, how do we sort the competing images of God in the Bible? That's what I want to try to answer today. This is actually, it's a huge topic, really. This would take weeks and weeks and weeks to really unpack. But I don't want to get away from the parables. So this morning, I want to do a one-off and share with you my suggestion for ha how to handle this dilemma. Bottom line, so that we can all have confidence that what Jesus says about God is true. Right? That, that's what we need to come away with. Slide two. Uh, in the 1980s, when I was on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, I was leading a, a study for college students on the book of Exodus, which tells the story of God choosing Moses to 
deliver the Jews from their enslavement in Egypt, right? And this is a very, very well-known story. Everybody know this story? Raise your hand if you know this story. I mean, if you, if you haven't seen the story, here's two movies. <laughs> Charlton Heston, The Ten Commandments, that's for older people like me. For the younger, young, younger people, you've got Disney's animated movie, The Prince of Egypt. So this is a, you know, well-known, you know, if you're culturally literate, you, you know the story of Exodus. But something unusual happened during that study that caught me totally by surprise. One of the students was Egyptian. You see what's coming, right? As the study progressed, he became more and more distressed by the violence of this story toward his people. I had never really stopped to think about it. You know, I'm, I tried to give him some answers, you know, but they were weak, really insufficient. And, and in all, the whole experience was very disorienting for me. And it started opening my eyes to some of the violent and morally offensive ways that God is portrayed in the Old Testament. As A.A. A. Milne, you know that name, A.A. A. Milne? Author of Winnie the Pooh? is famous for writing, the Old Testament is responsible for more atheism, agnosticism, disbelief, call it what you will, than any book ever written. Is that an exaggeration? Have you read the Old Testament? Right? Like other Christians, I'd spent years trying to justify these stories in kind of typical church apologetic ways but there are simply too many issues to contend with. All right, next slide. Here are some of the most problematic issues and passages. And again, just so you know where I'm going, I am not trying to destroy our trust in the Bible. All right? I just want to change how we look at it, just so you know where we're going. So here's some of the ways God is portrayed. God appears to command Moses to set apart a people for destruction no less than 37 times during Israel's conquest of the promised land. This is essentially genocide, or what has become known as holy war. How do you feel about genocide? Is that morally problematic? A particularly brutal account is found in Joshua 6, when Joshua leads an army of 30,000 against the city of Ai, and without mercy, killing all the city's inhabitants, including children. Right? That was standard operating procedure. Not a, not a one-off, but this, this, is how they, this is how they rolled. Israel offered up everyone and everything that was conquered to God as an act of worship. They thought this was pleasing to him. Calling it harem. People and things devoted to destruction. Beyond holy war, there are over a hundred passages in which Yahweh is depicted as commanding a person or a group to kill another person or group. Next slide. The Old Testament codes of law, supposedly given by God, command capital punishment not just for murder, some of us might be okay with that, but for sexual sins, religious violations such as working on the Sabbath, and for children who were unruly and stubborn. 
Good thing the kids aren't here in the service. Yeah, I see a few kids that are getting nervous. Oh, perfect timing, perfect timing. Thank you. Could not have been better. Now I'm just waiting for the dog to howl. Where are you, Scout? God is portrayed as sending destroying angels to kill people. Some of the Psalms celebrate hate towards enemies and portray God as slaughtering Israel's enemies, including babies. Psalm 137. Particularly problematic. And even though child sacrifice is forbidden in many places in the Old Testament, there are three passages that actually attribute it to God. Is that problematic to you? That's, that's our Bible. So although theologians work hard to explain or justify these incidents, and I've been there for a long time, spent 20 years trying to do that, in the end, we have to admit that they are horrific. You're looking at it from the Egyptian perspective. Is this a God you want to follow? No. Right? Only a contortionist could attempt to take these passages and figure out some way of saying they portray a quote-unquote good God, and then, I believe, not very convincingly. So the question is, next slide, how do we resolve this problem? Next slide. So to me, the first thing we need to do is revisit our understanding and view of Scripture. And the normal starting place for this is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This is where Paul writes, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What does it mean for scripture to be God-breathed? This is the only use in the Bible of the Greek word theonoustos. And it means literally, God breathed. Uh, but it's where we get the idea of inspired. Inspiration, breathing, same idea in the Hebrew. Inspired by God or, it, or due to the inspiration of God. So even though the Bible is written by human hands, we also believe as Christians it was inspired or breathed by God. We're all on the same page on that? with Paul. The question is, here's the question, how much of it is human and how much of it is divine? Now think about that for a second. How much of it is human and how much of it is divine? And if that percentage point gets over one, that is human, what does that do to the equation? I mean, it's got to be 100% Divine, if it's going to be problem-free, right? Now, many theologians... Next slide. Yeah, you're already there. Thank you. Many theologians point to 2 Peter 1, 21, which says, Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What they're arguing from that passage is that when Peter writes this, he means that all Scripture is exactly 100% the way God wanted it. 
that what those verse, those words say? What, is the, what, are the, what does that first say? It says, prophecy originates in God, and it comes through the Holy Spirit to human beings, but is that a guarantee that it's going to come out perfect? No. I, I don't read it that way. I don't think that's what the, the, the verse actually says. Next slide. Now, we recently looked at 1 Corinthians 13, so I'm not going to go at length on this passage because we've, we've covered this kind of already. In verses 8 through 10 and verse 12, Paul writes, But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part or partial disappears. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, an ancient mirror, not a new one. Kind of, right, metal surface, it's not very flat and very reflective. Uh, and then we shall see face to face. Remember talking about this passage? Paul's saying that we live in an age where even though we have the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, our knowledge and prophecy are still partial and obscure. Like looking into an ancient mirror. So is there such a thing as a complete and perfect prophecy? According to Paul. No, there isn't. Everything that's happened, and does Paul think that the Old Testament is greater than the prophecy that's happening in the church? Not if you've read Corinthians. The old stuff doesn't compare to what's happening in the New, right? So does Paul think that any prophecies in the Old Testament are perfect or complete? No, I don't think so. In fact, so one of the things that used to bug me there are places in the New Testament where the authors are quoting Old Testament passages and they actually change them. Right? And you're just like, what? I mean, given our evangelical modern Western worldview, you're like, how can they do that to Old Testament scripture? Well, the, way they can, the reason they can do it is because, in their view, it's partial and incomplete. And actually, now that Jesus has come, it makes more sense if you put it this way. Right? But it bugs us because of the way we've been trained to view Scripture. Okay, I'm just going to use a few more things here just to try to overwhelm you. In John 20, 22, we're told that Jesus breathed on disciples and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, just a second. Did the disciples become perfect because Jesus breathed on them and gave them the Holy Spirit? Okay, thank you. Just because it was God, they got God breathed, didn't become perfect. Genesis 2 7, we're told God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Was Adam perfect? Pretty obvious. No. So, where did this idea or pressure for the Bible to be error free come from? I mean, there was a lot of arguing when I was in my 20s and 30s about inerrancy of the Bible. Does it have errors or not? Where does that pressure come from? 
Well, if you've been paying attention to me over the last months, you know my answer is? Come on, what's the answer? The enlightenment, thank you. The age of reason. Because the enlightenment embraced Greek philosophical traditions about divine perfection. And therefore, pressure was put on the church to start defending the Bible as if it was an expression of divine perfection without error. Right? A couple other mind-benders. Did Paul think he was writing Scripture when he wrote his letter to Timothy saying all Scripture was God-breathed? Well, it's something to think about, right? What are we to make of Second Peter 3.16, where Peter says that Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand? Scripture saying that somebody else who wrote Scripture is kind of obscure. Hard to understand. I mean, it's just kind of weird, isn't it? Slide 9. Is this slide 9? All right. The most important question, bottom line, is what did Jesus think? Right? We talked about this probably a couple years ago, so people around this may sound vaguely familiar. Did Jesus think the scriptures were inspired? Did, did he see them as authoritative? Absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Did he think they were perfect and without error? Come on. Absolutely not. Because he's constantly correcting and altering what they taught. Weird, huh? We'll go over that in a minute. So here's my conviction. Slide 10. My conviction is that literally from the beginning of the Bible, God has been committed to a divine human partnership. Genesis 1 tells us that we were created in God's image and likeness to partner with God as rulers of this world. That's what dominion is. God's commitment to working with and through humanity is what the rest of the story of the Bible portrays. Never deviates, never changes. The narrative of the scripture as a whole is one in which God accomplishes almost everything in this world by working through non-coercive, mutually impacting relationships. That's a lot of words there. Did you get what I just said? God doesn't coerce people. He doesn't manipulate or override them by the Holy Spirit. They all, we always have our free will. And he allows the relationship to have give and take. God changes his mind in the scriptures. Bizarre, right? And God's commitment to the divine Human partnership is so complete that Jesus became a human being. Jesus had to take on human form in order to become what Paul says is a second Adam and rescue us from the consequences of the fall. Paul came through a human being. Salvation, reconciliation comes through a human being, Jesus. I'm convinced that this is how we got the Bible, through a divine human partnership. God partnered with imperfect, culturally conditioned human beings, and as I've been told, John Wimber, founder of the Vineyard, liked to say, 
Whenever God and humanity work together, it gets messy. Agree or disagree? Absolutely, it gets messy. And we have a messy Bible. All right? One that contains a multitude of errors, contradictions, historical inaccuracies, as well as morally offensive material. Does that bother you that I'm saying that? Does it make you uncomfortable? Yes, absolutely. It should make you uncomfortable. I hope it makes you uncomfortable. Any of you believe that God dictated the Bible? I mean, if God dictated the Bible, it would be much more uniform. There wouldn't be any changes. It would be all in the same voice, right? We know that's not what happened. And if the percentage of human involvement in the the creation of Scripture is more than 0%, going to be some problems. Amen? Does that help relieve some of your tension or not? Not yet. Again, if it makes you uncomfortable, I'm convinced it's not because of how the Bible speaks about itself. It's because of the pressure that our rational, scientific, enlightenment-driven Western culture has put on the church and shaped the lens we've been taught to use in our view of the Bible. So the main thing is, what does the Bible actually say about itself? Right? It says, it's God-breathed, it's the product of divine-human interaction. Right? Next slide. It says there's a progression. Do you think, is there a progression of revelation through the biblical narrative? Yes or no? A little bit of a trick question here. Careful how you answer. Absolutely there is, right? And the Bible says there is, right? If you read the letter to the Hebrews, the whole letter is about, hey, God used to speak to us through prophets, now we got the Son. Old Testament fading away. Soon to be, New Testament far surpasses the Old. Paul says the same things in his letters to the Corinthians, right? There's a progression in Revelation. Now, most theologians agree with that. I mean, everybody's kind of, all right. The fact, now here's, here's, here's the thing you have to pull away from this. The fact that there is a development at all, at all presupposes that God's previous revelations accommodated some fallible, fallen, and culturally conditioned aspects of God's people. That's an important, that word accommodated is important. There's a lot of accommodation in Scripture. There are some theologians who suggest that progressive revelation happens by God adding more truth to previous truth and never by God correcting previous misconceptions. I submit that simply does not work. Philosophically impossible, right? To the degree that people don't have a clear conception of God, they by definition have a foggy conception of God, inaccurate conception of God, and the only way to give people a clearer and more accurate conception of God is to help them abandon their foggier, foggier and less accurate conception of God. Agree? That's what progressive revelation means. It's what it is. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 13, is he not? And when we see God face to face, okay, all that, you know, it was helpful. The gifts of the Spirit are helpful. Prophecy is helpful. Tongues is helpful. Knowledge, gifts of knowledge is helpful. But, you know, it's all temporary and once we see God face to face, 
we don't need it. Because then we'll know fully, as just in the same way we're fully known. Right? I'm, I'm just trying to gauge how, I'm, how well I'm doing, convincing you and relieving your tension. So, if there's a progression, where did God start? Next slide. This is a map. That little box is the Middle East, or what people call the ancient Near East. So one of the things that rattled my cage when I got to seminary was my first class on the Old Testament. Pretty quickly, what I learned was that much of the material in the Old Testament has clear parallels in the literature of other nations in the ancient Near East. And you'll see A-N-E as the abbreviation in most of these slides. Ancient Near East. That's where the Israelites were located. For example, here's the very first thing we covered. Babylonians had a creation story titled Enuma Elish, which is strikingly similar to the Bible's creation accounts. Everything starts in darkness. Creation happens in six days, followed by rest. There's a firmament that's used to divide the water that is above from the water that's below. So there's even kind of an old, you know, ancient worldview. Uh, and strangely enough, in both accounts, light exists before the creation of the sun, moon, and stars. Which one's earlier? The Enuma Elish. Right? Now, there's some changes that are made, and we'll get to that in just a second. But the bulk of the material is just borrowed from the Babylonians. And there are many other parallels between the Bible and the literature of the ancient Near East. Slide 13, all right. There are several ancient Near Eastern parallels to the Bible's flood story that include a Noah-like figure who builds a huge boat to save his family as well as pairs of every kind of animal. The parallels are significantly older than the Genesis account. Some of the laws in the Old Testament are strikingly similar to the Babylonian code of Hammurabi, which is several centuries older than the biblical material. All ancient Near Eastern cultures had temples, priests, prophets, and a sacrificial system that closely resembled the ancient Israelites. Next slide. Throughout the ancient Near East, we find that the relationship between the people and the nation's chief deity is centered on the nation's king, just as we find in the Old Testament. And some of the imagery that the Israelites associated with Yahweh, not all of it, but some of it, was standard fare throughout the ancient Near East. Like other deities, the Israelites believed Yahweh lived on a sacred mountain, rode down on thundering clouds, threw thunderbolts as arrows, created wind by blowing air out of his mouth, and enjoyed the sweet aroma of sacrificed animals which were offered to God as food. The fact is... The crit critical biblical scholars agree that a significant amount of material in the Old Testament appears to have been more or less taken directly from these A&E sources. Does that bug you? Well, I'll tell you, I, when, I, when I started learning this in seminary, it drove me nuts. So bugged me because of the way I'd been brought up to try to think about the scriptures. 
I mean, really? I mean, if this is God's word, how could it actually have any kind of similarities to other cultures? You know, you see the splinter in your brain, right? What we see is that there are plenty of passages that reflect an A&E, ancient Near Eastern cultural perspective, that God is violent and nationalistic. That's what ancient Near Eastern cultures have. They had violent warrior deities who were just for them and against everybody else. For me, that's the fallen, conditioned perspective of God's human partners. That's the starting place God's working with. You know, in a strange way, it's like the father in the parable of the prodigal son who's willing to take the public embarrassment and humiliation of their son's perspective. This, do either of the sons see God for who he is or the father for who he really is? No, but he bears it. Because what he really wants is to reveal himself to them clearly and the younger son finally sees him and repents. The older son, we're left with the question about whether or not that's going to happen. But right, but a lot of these Old Testament depictions of God, in my opinion, are just God being willing to humbly bear these less than flattering depictions of who he is. The amazing thing, in my mind, and this is what I, where I started taking solace in seminary, is that as time goes on, the Holy Spirit breaks through and alters and corrects much of this A&E, ancient Near Eastern material. God can take the accommodations he makes for his human partners and use them for good. This is Romans 8, right? God can t- turn things for good. So even though he's a- accommodating this fallen human perspective of what he's like, he turns it for good. Let me give you a couple examples. We know, uh, this is the simplest one, we know from the Old Testament that God wanted Israel to be a theocracy, right? When I say theocracy, I mean a kingdom where God is king. How did Israel feel about that? Go back to Samuel. Martha's shaking her head no. I mean, the story is that the people started begging for a king. They didn't want God to be the king. They started asking for a human king. Why? Why do they want a human king? Because that's what all the other ancient Near Eastern cultures around them had. They wanted to be like them. And so God, what does God do? What's the word? Accommodates. Thank you. Important word. God accommodates. Samuel crowns Saul as the king. How'd that go for him? Not that well. And the whole history of the rest of the Old Testament is just this uh, sine wave of good and bad kings. But what does God do with that? How does the Holy Spirit come in and redeem this suboptimal system of having a king? What's that? Well, he's, well, he starts, you know, there's some prophecy of that there's going to be someone from the line of David who's going to be a king and deliver the people. Right? Same thing goes for prophets. Hey, there's going to be a prophet like Moses. He's going to... Same thing for priest. I mean, Jesus literally is our prophet, priest, and king. So God takes all these weird ancient Near Eastern and he starts infusing them with, oh, I can redeem this. 
And the redemption is Jesus. How do you think God feels about the sacrificial system? What's that? Okay, so, I mean, it's interesting. I don't have time to go through all the scriptures, so I want... At the beginning, it's, oh, God loves this. And by the end of the Old Testament is, I hate this. So which is it? Does he love it or does he hate it? Does, did God find the burning flesh of animals an attractive aroma? I don't think so. The ancient Israelites thought so and said so in the Bible. But how does God redeem it? How does the Holy Spirit take that system and redeem it? Well, Jesus is the, the Lamb of God. I mean, so, you see what I'm saying? God can accommodate our fallen perspectives and all these weird things that we initially think about who he is and what he's like and redeem them and turn them for good. And it's usually by pointing it somehow in some way to Jesus. But here, here's my bottom line, okay? God cannot both be the national deity of Israel that smashes the skulls of all her enemies and the God of the entire world who does not want a single person to perish. Agreed? Are those mutually exclusive? Can those two things possibly be true together? No. And as a Christian, I think any theology that is nationalized or nationalistic and politicized to violence is anathema. It misses Jesus and the kingdom of God, period. I, no, that's me. I'm not saying that's the vineyard's perspective, but that's me. Any Christian theology that either wants to focus on Israel or the U.S. as sort of the God's chosen nation, that's not the gospel, and that's not what Jesus says, period. Next slide. Jesus, all right? Everything points to Jesus. And here, here's the really, 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 really good news. I mean, if what I've said, does it, what I've said make you nervous? I mean, part of the effect it had on me was, well, then what can we possibly trust? I mean, how do you know what to trust and what not to trust in the Scriptures? Well, actually, it's very simple and it's very, well, I would say absolutely clear. If you've been around for the past two years, you've heard from Randy, you've heard from me, that the New Testament perspective is that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Punta final. Did I say that right? Thank you. We looked at passages like Colossians 1, 15 to 20, where Paul says Jesus is God's icon. Remember, icons were for, forbidden in the Old Testament. You can't make an image of God. But in the New Testament, God says, yeah, Jesus is my image. He's my icon. You look at him, you see me. All right? Hebrews 1, the beginning of that letter is beautiful. Jesus is the exact representation of God. 1 Timothy 2, Jesus is the one mediator between God and humankind. So we've been over these passages at length. The story or the narrative of the Bible has its climax, its apex, in 
Jesus. Jesus is the trump card. If you play card games where there's trump, he's the trump. What's the point of the transfiguration stories in the gospel? You know, so right after Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter sort of gets it right, but doesn't really. You're the Messiah. He takes Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain, and he's transfigured, right? His, his appearance and his clothes become bright white. Clouds come. Elijah and Moses show up. Peter doesn't know what to do. Oh, let's build booths. God says... God says, this is my son. Listen to him. And then what happens to Elijah and Moses, who Peter wanted to build booths for? God. Who are Elijah and Moses? What do they represent? Law and the prophets. This is the way the Jews talked about the Old Testament. The whole point of the transfiguration story is Jesus is telling them about what's going to happen to him as the Messiah, what's written about him. They go up to the mountain. They think, oh, here's Elijah and Moses. And God just says, hey, Jesus, he's my son. These guys are prophets. They're gone. Jesus is the trump card. Don't worry about what, and listen to him. Does that make sense? Now, remember how we said that Jesus affirmed the inspiration and authority of the Old Testament, but he also felt the need to correct and change it. Here are some things that we find in the Gospels. Next slide. So Jesus repudiates Old Testament laws around oaths, Sabbath keeping, clean and unclean food. And remember he says all foods are clean. An eye for an eye, the lectolanus, and how we treat our enemies. We don't slaughter them and smash their heads against rocks. We love them, right? And that word repudiate is chosen very intentionally. Repudiate means denying the truth and validity of something. Right? So it's not just a, a, a clearer version of the truth. He's, Jesus is denying the truth and validity of these laws. No, they're wrong. Jesus repudiates holy war. When James and John come and say, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire? Where did they get that idea? From Elijah, the Tishbite, the prophet, who called down fire and killed 50, companies of 50 army people at a time, right? Seemed like a good idea. Is that what God is like? Well, it, this, it gets complicated, right? Because Elijah thought so. And Elijah used divine power to do it. So there's, I'm not saying this is simple. It gets complicated how that could all work. But Jesus repudiates it. says, no. No. That is not what we're doing. It's not what I'm about. Jesus rejects both nationalism and violence, which is why his inaugural address in Luke 4 is considered scandalous by those who heard him. And everybody who heard him tried to throw him off a cliff to kill him. Because what he emphasized was the lack of violence and the inclusion of the Gentiles. Right? And now I'm going to say a couple of things that are even stronger. 
I mean, we're a part of the evangelical movement. The evangelical movement's known for its the value we place on the Word of God. Amen? Do we hold the Word of God with esteem and high value? Do we believe it's inspired and authoritative? Yes. Do we think it's problem-free? Mm, I don't. I don't know about you. I don't. But here's one of the problems. A lot of the evangelical church is a lot like the Pharisees to whom Jesus says, look, you search the Scriptures, you value the Scriptures, but the Scriptures point to me, and you're missing it. It's possible to be bibliolaters. You know what that word means? Having an idolatrous relationship with the Bible and actually miss the person whom the Bible is pointing to. I would actually suggest to you that Jesus is the Word of God. Can I hear an amen, please? Thank you. I mean, who's the Logos? Jesus is the Logos. The Bible is a kind of messy recounting of the story of God. I would call it the story of God, the narrative of the history of God's interaction with people. The Word of God is Jesus. What about truth? Truth is going to set you free. Is truth an idea? Is truth a concept? Is it a theological framework that you have to affirm in order to be saved? Or is it Jesus? Jesus says, I am the truth, the way and the life. What's going to save us isn't believing in certain theological concepts. What's going to save us is Jesus, a relationship with Jesus. Okay? Now, bottom line, we can trust Jesus' revelation of God. Let me just remind you of a few beautiful verses from the New Testament. Next slide. These will sound very familiar, but given what I've said, I hope they just are like a light bulb. John 6, 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Did the Old Testament prophets see God? Well, I mean, Isaiah says, I was in the temple, I saw a vision of God. Yeah, he saw a vision of God. Did he see God in fullness and completeness? No. We can say with certainty, no. Did Jesus? Yes. John 14, 9. Jesus said to him, I've been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Does that take on more weight after what we've talked about this morning? When we see Jesus, we see the Father. And we can trust his descriptions of God because he is the one and only who's come down from heaven to reveal his true nature. If there's a conflict with any other description or image of God in the Bible, who wins? Jesus. He's the trump card. Have I convinced you yet? So what's my argument? I'm saying the church has been 
pressured into this weird view of Scripture that the Bible does not even claim for itself. From the Enlightenment, from science, from... Right? What the Bible says about itself, this is threefold, is... God breathed. It's a divine human partnership. That means there's room for problems. It's messy. God breathed inspired, but messy. That's how I read God breathed. What's the second argument? The Bible argues that there's a progression in the revelation of Scripture. So whatever's murky and obscure in the old gets trumped by Jesus in the new. Amen? And that's the third thing, too. That Jesus is the ultimate revelation, depiction, apex, supreme, supreme revelation of who God is and what he's like. Last slide. Now I'm going to cry. <laughs> I will save it for last. So after following Jesus for three years, experiencing his death and resurrection, John, who liked to call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, his reflection and conclusion is that God is love. You are loved. To live the with God life that Randy's always talking about and that I love, I mean, I, I call it the Emmanuel lifestyle, God with us. We need to abide in that love. And your mental image of God is all important. I cannot stress enough that how you picture God in your mind's eye absolutely determines what your experience of him is. Trust Jesus. He is the ultimate. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I think this is a weird topic, uh, even a stressful topic, because we've been trained to think about your word a certain way for so long. Um, and I know for me personally, I spent decades trying to defend the things that I no longer even think of as important. I'm grateful that you sent Jesus and that Jesus knows you he knows you fully, and he reveals you fully, and that we can trust what he says about who you are and what you're like. And who he is and what he's like. But I'm just thinking about John 15, and where Jesus says, he's the, he's the vine, we're the branches. If we want to thrive, we have, if we want to live the with Jesus life, we have to be attached to the vine and abide in that love. So I want to pray for each and every person here today that you would just continue to reveal yourself to them, that you would convince them in their heart, in, that, in their being, that you are love. Yeah, I, I, I thank you for Jesus. He is the light of the world. He is the truth. We thank you that it's knowing him that transforms us, that changes us, that redeems us, that reconciles us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.